I have prepared this morning a message, and once again, it is in preparing to present the Word of God, I think that we find the most how much we need Him. This last week, it was a <coughs> excuse me. It was a difficult week. I'll be honest. I was on the road for a few days and struggled there spiritually. I came home. I got upset with my wife on my part. And then you try to prepare to present the Word of God. He has chosen very weak, very weak vessels, vessels, sorry, to bear His Word and to preach His Word. For that I am thankful. I'm thankful for the privilege that though we are so fraught with failure and weakness, that He is gracious and loving. Thank you for praying for me, Martin, this morning. I needed it. Let's open in another word of prayer, and then we'll go to the text. Lord God, we thank you for your abundant mercy and grace. Lord, I thank you for your provision for each one of us. I thank you that we can again come together, Lord, and look into your word, and I pray, God, that your spirit would give me wisdom, give me words to speak. Lord, help me to proclaim your truth, that it is not I that speaks, but it is you that speak through me, God. I pray that you would make receptive hearts here this morning to hear your word, and that you would bless each one of us as we worship you in this way. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our text for this morning will be in Romans chapter 8. And the main body of our text will be Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. But for the opening reading, I would like to read starting from verse 1. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul has just finished his portion in chapter 7 that we are so familiar with. Now I do, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He has this turmoil within himself. And he finishes chapter 7 by saying, but thanks be to God, or sorry, in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He then starts in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore... Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life the spirit is life because of righteousness if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised christ jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is making the distinction here in comparison between the sinner or the believer having been moved from flesh to the spirit. How we are now ruled by the spirit having the very same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead living in each one of us. And though we were once separated by our sins we have been made right by the work of christ we have been justified and before i get into the main text of verse 14 through 17 i want to take a little bit of a look at our justification we talked last week a little bit about that when we looked at some different aspects of the gospel message and how we are justified by faith through the work of christ and how christ alone is our sufficiency we sang the second song hallelujah all i have is christ hallelujah jesus is my life and in that the message for titled for this morning is joint heirs with christ we are united with christ so to start in our justification in romans chapter 3 verse 21 romans chapter 3 verse 21 says but now the righteousness of god has been made manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over our former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Paul continues that same thought in chapter 5, the first two verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Further in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, speaking of Adam in the Garden of Eden, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So Paul is comparing the entrance of death into the world through Adam and the entry of eternal life through the work of Christ. He is making the comparison of sin and grace, which is the gift that he's speaking of in verse 16. Condemnation and justification. Through Adam's act, we were condemned. Through the gift of Christ, we are justified. Condemnation was based on just one sin. But justification is not only for that one original sin, but rather for all the many sins committed down through the many ages since Adam by the many multitudes of God's people. So we see the abundance of God's grace in our justification. So to justify, the term translated to justify means to make or to render right 
or just, to hold as guiltless, to accept as righteous, to be held acquitted and to be cleared and to stand approved and accepted. So when we are justified by God through Christ, Christ's work and His righteousness imputed to us, we stand accepted and approved before God the Father. Justification is a legal term referring to the work of God in dealing with the most basic of all religious questions. How can a man or a woman become right before God? It is the question that all religions seek to answer. We are not right with Him in ourselves. This is where we have the doctrine of sin. Sin means that we are in rebellion against God, and if we are against God, we cannot be right with Him. We are all transgressors, for Paul also says in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the doctrine of justification is the most important of all Christian doctrines, because it tells how the one who is in rebellion against God may become right with Him. It says that we may be justified from all our sin by and through the work of Christ. If we receive that based on faith and not by our own works-based righteousness. Paul puts it like this, All who believe are justified freely by His, that is God's grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And he also says, A man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. In verse 28 of Romans chapter 3. And in chapter 4 he says, To the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. These verses teach that justification is God's work and that it flows from grace. As Paul says later in chapter 8 of Romans, in verse 33 and 34, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is it at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? It is God who justifies. It is, who is it then who condemns? This reiterates the point Paul made in verse 1 of chapter 8 where he said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because if we are in Christ Jesus, God has justified us. He has imputed Christ's righteousness to us, thereby approving us and accepting us on Christ's merit. So who then can condemn us? In God's justification of the sinner, there is an entirely unique factor that does not enter into any other kind of religious justification. And that unique factor is Christ's atonement for our sin together with God's provision of it for our need of a divine righteousness through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And further, uh, in 1 Peter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So we see, in Christianity, God provides the work to make us righteous. Through Christ, Christ provides the atonement and God makes that provision for us. In justification, God declares that He has accepted the sacrifice of Christ as the payment for our debt to the divine justice and has imputed Christ's righteousness to us in place of the sin that we bear in our flesh. And because Christ's atonement satisfied the justice of God regarding all of our sins, God's grace so clearly abounds in the act of our justification. So with that in mind, of how God has justified us through Christ, let's move into the body of our text, chapter 8 of Romans, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. John MacArthur states in his commentary that believers are not led through subjective mental impressions or promptings 
to provide direction in making life's decisions, something Scripture nowhere teaches. Instead, God's Spirit objectively leads His children, sometimes through the orchestration of circumstances, as we see in Acts chapter 16, verse 7, where Paul, Silas, and Barnabas, or sorry, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were on their way, and they were going to head over to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow him, it says. But primarily, God's Spirit leads us through, one, illumination, divinely clarifying the Scriptures to make it understandable to our sinful, finite minds, and two, sanctification. The Spirit of God leads us by divinely enabling us to obey Scripture, to obey what God has laid out for us in His Word. And by this, the Spirit, and by the Spirit's leading in these ways, we receive assurance that we are sons of God and as adopted children into His family. It is precisely by receiving the Spirit of adoption as sons that we see in verse 15, where He says, For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons. And it is by receiving the Spirit that our assurance grows and we enter into an intimate relationship with God the Father as we see at the end of verse 15 where we cry out to Him, Abba, Father. Abba is a mer- the Aramaic term for Father that bears with it a sense of intimacy, tenderness, dependence, and relationship free of fear or anxiety. So we see the appeal we as children of God have to Him as our Father where we depend on Him, and there's a sense of intimacy there with Him. One author once said, and I forget where I read it, but only a child can enter the king's throne room or the king's bedchamber at three in the morning and ask for a cup of water. If anybody else would try to do that, the king's guards would be on him very quick. And that is similar to the relationship we have with God, our Father. Though He is Lord of all, the creator of the heavens and earth. He is our Abba, Father. We have an intimate relationship with Him. And in verse 16, Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we have been adopted by God. And as a legal act, Roman adoption had to be attested by a witness. And as verse 16 says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit of God is here the attesting witness that God the Father adopts believers in Jesus as His own children. And we see there in our adoption as God's children the work of the triune God, the Trinity, the Spirit being the witness, the Father adopting us through Jesus as His own children. So the Trinity is active in the work of redeeming His people. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll get a bit of a picture again of adoption. And how as the adopted children, we end up becoming rightful heirs. So in Galatians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 23 and we'll read to chapter 4, verse 7. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are God's, or sorry, because you are sons, 
God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Through adoption, the adopted child receives all the same benefits as blood children. There is legally no difference between the status between an adopted child and a blood child. And in the Roman days, and I believe it would be similar today, in their culture, a child that was adopted automatically received the same benefits and rights as all the blood children. So what then are these benefits? We read in the last three verses, in verse 14 through 16, that we are adopted children of God. And that leads up to our being an heir in verse 17. So what are these benefits of being an adopted child of God? Well, I've pulled out a couple here that I want to cover to help us have a better understanding of this relationship. So the Christian has a heavenly father. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? James says, Every good and gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So we see we have a gracious Father in heaven. Another benefit, we have access to this Father. Christians can pray and know that our Heavenly Father hears and will answer our prayers. Jesus taught us to pray in uh, Matthew, in the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. It starts off with an appeal, our Father. It starts off with one of the most intimate terms that He used in addressing God the Father. And that is how He has told us to pray. Another benefit, we receive guidance from the Father. One of the purposes of Scripture is to guide the believer. 2 Timothy 3.16, and I'll just flip through some of these here fairly quickly. But 2 Timothy 3.16, very popular verse, but all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Psalm 119, starting in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Other verses, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. And also John chapter 8, where Jesus says, If you are my disciples, abide in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And also the Apostle John in chapter 17, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So God gives us guidance. He has graciously provided us a book of direction inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that dwells in each one of us if we are a child of God, also inspired this book, giving us direct access to the revelation and understanding of God's very own heart laid out in Scripture. Another benefit of being an adopted child of God, we have security from the Father. When a person repents and believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, immediately they pass from death to life. John says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And our security lies with the Father himself. For he says, my Father, who has given them to me, Jesus, speaking of his sheep, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The final and maybe most important benefit of being an adopted child of God is we are united with Christ. Romans chapter 6, reading verses 4 and 5, it says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. 
we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sorry, I missed verse 4. But the point in verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him. And also in chapter 8, as we read in our opening scripture, starting in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to God. But if, the, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, who dwells in you we have been united with christ this word means to be planted together colossians 127 says to them that is speaking to the saints god has chosen to make known among the gentiles the glorious riches of his of this mystery which is christ in you the hope of glory we know from the way paul speaks elsewhere that he is referring here to the fact that all those who have believed in christ have been made alive in him so that the life of Christ Himself may be said to be within us. In Galatians, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And again, as we read in 8.11, the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in each one of us, giving life to our mortal bodies. There's two very important consequences to this. We are united with Christ and our life is in Him and His life in us. First, the divine life within us is eternal. It will not die. Second, the divine life will always strive for righteousness. For that is its nature. It will abhor sin. It will cleave to the good. It is on this basis that the Apostle John appeals to the presence of righteousness within the life of of a Christian as proof that he or she has been born of God. And in the book of 1 John, we read in chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. He says in chapter 3, verse 9. Now we know John does not mean that Christians never sin. We understand that for John himself declares in verse 8 of chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But what he does mean is that the new life of Christ within any true child of God will yearn after the righteousness of Christ and lead the believer in that direction day by day throughout his or her life. Remember, the very same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in us as children of God. This is a great improvement even over the case of Adam in the Garden of Eden. For the natural life of Adam, even though at that time he was without any moral flaw, it still did not lead him to desire righteousness. On the contrary, he chose death and rebellion. And in these points, we see the many benefits of being an adopted child of God, summed up in our union with Christ. Here again, being united with Christ is on full display as we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. In verse 17 of Romans 8, he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with them. So we see this union with Christ, again, on full display in that verse. 
children are entitled to their father's inheritance. As children of God, we too are entitled to an inheritance. Romans 8.17, as we just read, And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs, or joint heirs with Christ. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And John 14, verse 2. Also, every believer has the promise of God of an has has the promise of God of an eternal home in heaven as part of our inheritance. And so to be an heir, let's look at some of these terms here. So to be an heir means to be a possessor. You have a right over that to which you are an heir. The phrase heirs of God then makes it clear that the source of our inheritance is God himself and properly translated would read that we are heirs of what God promises. But not only are we heirs, Paul says in the ver- verse 17 that we are fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ. To be a joint heir means that we are um, united together with. In the Greek, there's a, a prefix to the word that's translated as heir, which means to be together with by association or companionship. So by putting that together with the what is translated as heir, we receive or we get the phrase a joint heir or a fellow heir and this indicates that our inheritance is the same as what christ possesses through a close association with him remember we are united with christ in law there is a very important difference between being an heir and being a joint heir or a fellow heir for an example let's suppose a man dies and leave a fortune leaves a fortune of four hundred thousand dollars for his four children Now, if they are each named heirs in the will, then that $400,000 will evenly be split up and each child will receive an inheritance of $100,000. But if that will names those four children as joint heirs, then the estate is not divided amongst them, so they each get 25% or $100,000, but rather they now together possess the full amount of $400,000 and legally each one of them can use say that they are worth $400,000. So it gives us a bit of an idea. We are not only heirs along with Christ, meaning we get part of what he has and he keeps part, but we are joint heirs with him where God has given us the full right to put claim on what he has given Christ when we are ultimately glorified. And so then what is our inheritance? It is all that is Christ's. Hebrews chapter 1. First two verses say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 11 reads, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, when Romans 8.17 tells us that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, we are to inherit all that is Christ's and rule with Him over creation, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We will be rulers with Him in His kingdom. Ephesians chapter 3 says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises in Christ, jesus through the gospel so we see here too how gentiles and jews have both been made partakers of this inheritance hence why paul so often uses the phrase there is neither jew nor greek nor slave nor free for we are all one in christ jesus donald barnhouse in his commentary writes shall the king possess something and not share it with his bride blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 Does he have riches? 
then ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Does the king have love? Or does Christ have love and fellowship with his Father? We are joint heirs to all with Christ. But Paul goes on in verse 17. And he says, We're joint heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. Provided we suffer with Him. Here we are faced with the difficult doctrine of Christian suffering. Provided that here speaks of a condition not yet fulfilled and to suffer with is in a progressive present tense, meaning it is something the believer experiences in an ongoing manner throughout their life as a fellow heir with Christ. Let's use Peter's first epistle, First Peter, and try to unpack a little bit this idea of Christian suffering. While you're turning to First Peter chapter 1, I want to read a quote by Albert Moeller. He makes this observation. We are carrying out a commission to make disciples of the king and citizens of the kingdom. And of course, we can only do so with great suffering and tribulation. But in Peter's first epistle, the Apostle Peter addresses a persecuted church. They are dispersed abroad according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He says in uh, verse 2 of chapter 1. They were discouraged and probably confused at the persecution they were facing because of their newfound faith. Peter opens his epistle by encouraging them to remain strong and reminds them to look to Christ, the source of their salvation and their inheritance in Him, and the hope of His return to take the church with Him to glory. He begins his epistle with a stark reminder of the gospel and the hope of the believer in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He then goes on one verse further in verse 6. And he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter says the church is to rejoice in the hope of the gospel. The promised inheritance of eternal salvation, even though they are for a little while faced with various trials. Peter contrasts their eternal hope with the temporal suffering that they now face, causing his readers to look beyond the trials of the here and now and focusing their view on the glories of their inheritance. Peter understands that suffering will be normal for the obedient Christian because Christ first suffered for us, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, leaving us an example to follow Him in suffering. Persecution will be a result of following Christ. For the world hated him first and therefore will hate us, as John reminds us in chapter 15, verses 18 to 19. And it is to this end that the Scripture speaks much of the eternal glory of God and our inheritance with Christ as a contrast to our temporary affliction. In the main text of Romans chapter 8, and I'll just read this here quickly, but we see in verses 17, Paul also recognizes this. And he contrasts our suffering as well. He says in verse 17, the second half, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may, we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, the temporary, are not worthy, worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to be revealed to us, looking to the eternal. So Paul, like Peter, points to the eternal over and above the temporary for our times of suffering. We endure through these things because of this inheritance that Peter references in his opening chapter. So it is important to note also, though, that suffering does not necessarily come as a result of sin in our lives. 
Though this may often be the case, it is not the only reason for trials in our lives. These trials may also be present so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 verse 7. So in verse 6 when he says, In this you rejoice, this gospel, this promised inheritance, though now for a little while we suffer, so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Trials test our faith to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ and are often God's way of strengthening us in our walk with Him, creating in us an enduring faith through the process of sanctification. In Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he addresses this in this way, Not all discipline is in order to correct us from sins that we may have committed. It can also be allowed by God to strengthen us in order that we may gain greater ability to trust God and resist sin in the challenging path of obedience. We see this clearly in the life of Jesus himself, who though he was without sin, yet learned obedience through what he suffered, according to Hebrews chapter 5. And in Hebrews chapter 2, it says he was made perfect through suffering. Therefore, we should see all the hardship and suffering that comes to us in life as something that God brings to us to do us good, strengthening our trust in him and our obedience and ultimately increasing our ability to glorify him. Peter also reiterates this point of Christ's suffering, setting an example for us, when in chapter 3 of 1 Peter he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why would we not expect to suffer for doing good when Christ, who is the righteous, suffered and gave himself for us, the unrighteous? When Jesus calls us to suffer, he understands how we feel and what we are going through, as he also suffered, and he is our example in having done so. We are united with Christ. Paul says, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Peter further encourages his readers with this exhortation. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we see that suffering is a common theme in the New Testament Scriptures. Christ suffered, leaving us an example. And by sharing in His suffering, we also shall become partakers in His glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Provided we suffer with Him, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. To be glorified with Him. Here it means, to the, the, the word translated as to glorify means to render or esteem glorious, to be full of glory. Paul says we share in His glory. To be glorified together with Him has the same prefix as we saw before as being a fellow heir, meaning we are a companion with Him and united to Him in this as well. We share in His glory. This is a statement of fact in which we, as the recipients, are passive, meaning we are on the receiving end. We do not do the work. And God through Christ is being active. So through the work of Christ, God has provided this way and He has given it to us and we are passive in this, receiving this gift from Him. God gives 
and we receive. I want to look at three different passages, but if you can turn to John chapter 17. So the Gospel of John chapter 17. Just keep your finger there. I'll flip to one other passage in the middle, but I want you to see something. Three passages that we take together give us a picture of our union, union and heirship with Christ. On the Mount of Olives, in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed. Let's read John chapter 17, the first five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me. So Jesus is asking the Father here to glorify him in his own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is making the appeal when he came to earth in Philippians, the book of Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming a servant, taking on flesh. He is now asking God the Father to return the same glory to him that he had with the Father for eternity past as part of the Trinity in the relationship of the triune Godhead. Now just stay in John chapter 17 for a second. I want to jump to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Again, speaking of Jesus Christ. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus just makes the request of God the Father before he was led to his crucifixion in John chapter 17 to have this glory returned to him. What does Peter say God did? God raised him from the dead and gave him glory, the glory that he had just prayed for. The night before he was crucified, as we just read in John chapter 17. But what did Jesus do with the glory he received in the triumph of his resurrection? So let's go back to John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's just finished referencing to those that believed in him currently and those who will believe him throughout the course of time as people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. As children of God, we are united with Christ. We share in His inheritance. We share in His suffering. And we share in His glory. How wonderful to be partakers of His glory, to be fellow heirs with His resurrection triumphs, His inheritance, His suffering, and through that, His glory. We have truly become, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.23, the fullness of Him that fills all in all. So in conclusion, ours is an inheritance that can never depreciate in value or be lost, as we read in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Our inheritance is incorruptible, imperishable, undefilable. We know that Adam lost his inheritance through sin. We do not lose our inheritance because it is given on a different basis. Adam's inheritance was based on a covenant of works. If he remained in obedience, the inheritance would be his. If he rebelled, it would be forfeited, and we know that he rebelled. He lost his inheritance. Our inheritance is based on the covenant of grace. And since grace is neither earned nor deserved, it is based purely on the will of the unchangeable God 
And because of that, our inheritance is secure and certain. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 that we've been looking at says, in the sense, if we are children, then we are heirs. We become children by the grace of God. He adopted us. For we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 1, verse 13. And so since our inheritance is based on our being children, and since we become children not by our own will, but by the will of God, nothing can alter it, lest Christ also lose his inheritance. For as we saw, we are united to him. And this is the living hope that Peter too referenced to the suffering church. This is our confidence. This is our assurance. That as children of God, united with Christ, we rest in the eternal promises of God and not by the merit of our own flesh. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we come before you again. And I thank you for your grace and your abundant mercy that you have so richly bestowed on us as children of God, Lord, and given us your spirit to help us, your word to guide us. God, I pray that you will be with each one of us here. Help us to see if we are children of God, that we are truly united to your Son, Jesus Christ, and who we are in that, and that we might walk victoriously, free from sin, renouncing sin, renouncing wickedness in this world. And we bring glory to your name in how we live and how we act. And God, that we would be reminded of these promises daily when we struggle, when we feel we are suffering. Rather than to run from this, Lord, help us to look at your eternal promises. Help us to look at the inheritance that you are keeping for us as you are guarding us for our final salvation. Help us, Lord, to walk in your truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.